Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 25th episode of the Bad Motor GP show. We have uh, now motor news with us. So, uh, yeah, would you please introduce yourself to all the people who don't know the person behind the behind the Instagram page? Well, uh, I, I'm sure some of you know me from the EMR podcast, the Everton Motor Racing podcast. Uh, but if you don't, uh, my name's Jacob. I'm normally referred to as the Welsh one. So... That's pretty much my MO at the minute. Uh, and yeah, I just, I'm here to, to chat everything Will Superbike, so. Yeah, that's correct, because we are uh, reviewing the, the Superbike races in Indonesia. And for me personally, it has been a crazy weekend, because uh, maybe you saw it on the Instagram, I was at, in Amsterdam tonight, watching uh, the Don't Let Daddy Know festival and while because my girlfriend had tickets for it and while the festival was going i was trying to catch up with world superbike and uh, yeah it has been uh, a rather crazy night i've been sleeping until maybe an hour ago so uh, please excuse me if i don't have all the um, usual information right on on the top of my head because you know how it is and um But luckily, I have Jacob with me right now, and uh, you wasn't partying all night. So, uh, yeah. Too and old I, for that, no. <laughs> yeah, and I hope that uh, you can help me a little bit out because I'm still new to the whole Superbike thing. So, uh, I would like to start with race one of the World Superbike class because Alvaro Batista won the race, and it was a rather boring race i would say like your typical MotoGP race would be where not a lot of overtaking was going on but what was interesting to me is that uh, before mandalika everybody was saying okay this is the chance for toprak to catch up maybe he has a shot to um, close the gap to ducati because alvaro batista obviously is a philip island specialist but he ran away with the thing and it seems like ducati is really really dominant and it wasn't just um not a fluke in philip island i'm not trying to say that but um you know yeah. where i'm going that uh, the the dominance is real so what did you make out of the ducati dominance there in in race one well if we're going back to philip island it was expected it's a flowing track ducati has the most power you know we have bautista on it who is for all intents and purposes a dwarf compared to the others so he's obviously gonna thrive at Phillip Island. And then we came to Indonesia and we were all thinking, oh, here we go. Top Rack is gonna have some fantastic chance here, some high heavy breaking zones, which is his forte. Uh, not a lot of real on paper Ducati strengths. And yet Bautista in the first race ran away with it by four seconds. It's, it's quite alarming, shall we say, for the rest of the field. Because if Bautista can do that on a track which plays the top rack strengths, what's going to happen for the rest of the season? It's it, it's worrying. Yeah. Like, you you would have expected top rack to at least be closer over the race distance. Granted, he suffered with the tire, which has become a a, a Mandalika favorite of everybody in MotoGP and in World Superbike. But to do what he did in that first race and do it so comfortably. It's, it's a worry. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. It's a worry. 
Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of uh, last year in MotoGP when Peko started winning in Jerez, started winning in Assen, and you figure out, okay, this is not like your usual Ducati track. It's not Mugello, it's not uh, Spielberg. You know, uh, shit is getting serious when Ducati is good on those, let's say, Yamaha tracks or um, yeah. not typical Ducati tracks. And I get the same feeling in uh, World Superbike right now where Ducati is just head and shoulders above everybody else. And also with Rinaldi when he stays on the bike and doesn't have a red flag, which disturbs him. And yeah. also Kasani, I believe Kasani is his name, on the satellite Ducati. Yeah, Kasani is, he, yeah. he struggled a little bit with the move to the 2023 bike because it's smaller, built more around Alvaro. But when he finds his feet. Whew. Yeah, what I wanted to ask you, um, Bassani has the has the exhaust placed differently on his Ducati, and I was wondering yes. if it was maybe an older version. But you said it's the it's the it's the latest twenty yes. two bike, right? Yeah, he's on the twenty three bike, but he has Termignoni exhaust where everybody else has Akrapovic, okay. so it's just slightly styled differently. Okay, so it's just a different uh, manufacturer of the exhaust. Yes, he, he's a uh, Terminoni who have run it centrally under the seat. Akropovich run the two either side. Oh, okay. So that's the that's the ring. I was wondering what was going on there. I, was, uh, I wanted to ask you that. But uh, there's no real difference in performance in the bike or... If, if there is, it's very marginal okay. because it, he has a 23 bike. Okay, so yeah, he was really, really good. But apart from that, nothing really happened in uh, race one. It was a little bit boring. And when we came down, like to, I've already forgot which position it was, like P8 or something. Um, then the battling started uh, started to to occur. And uh, I believe Michael van der Mark on the BMW, he was making some serious progress in race one. But yes. at the moment, it seems like uh, Yamaha and Kawasaki, they are just catching up and BMW and Honda are even further behind. So yes. um, what's your whole opinion on Yamaha and Kawasaki right now? Well, on the whole, I think Yamaha aren't too far off. I'd say they, they, need, they need something because they are, you know, it's classic Yamaha, always been slightly down on power, but a sweet chassis. Like it always is the way. But to come into this season with the Ducati having improved and they've, I wouldn't say they've gone backwards, but they've stagnated. They've, they've stayed where they were last season. There's not been any real big improvements. And that, that is equates to going backwards in the world stage because if you're not going forwards, you're pretty much done. So they need to find something. But I don't see what they can possibly bring on that bike because... They, they seem to have been stretching it out and stretching it out and stretching it out. Like that package is a few years old now. And where do you go? Whereas the V4R and even the Kawasaki to a point, is, it has more potential, in my opinion. There's more... I'm trying to word it in... I'm not criticizing Yamaha, but I think there is a change needed in some way of how they are creating their bikes because you can't rely on top rack being incredible as he is every single race because eventually it will come undone but then we say that and then they took a one two in the super bowl race so you know everything i've just said might just be undone you know so 
I think I think on the on the, on the whole, on as a sphere, I think Ducati are ahead. Dennis Yam, Kawasaki are behind because they've got a new Tokyo engine and they've lost still lost the five hundred revs, which I think they will get back, which I'll discuss shortly. And then BMW and Honda are slightly behind, but newer packages, potential base higher. Whether they can do it is a different question. Yeah, and uh, with Yamaha, it seems like in Superbike, it's a similar story uh, with uh, with the MotoGP bike because Fabio is doing all he can on the Yamaha and it's not up there with the Ducati. And um, yeah, when you say Yamaha needs a new bike, which um, which again, I'm not too uh, familiar with, uh, with Superbike. So do they need to develop a new bike from the ground up a new r1 for the street and then extract the most performance out of it or do they need to take a different approach on having the base r1 that they have right now and uh, making a better superbike out of it well that's the question isn't it because you see certain like ducati they went from the v twin to the v4 and instantly it was a much much more rounded package and it's not that old but if you look at when Yamaha actually introduced their current model even though it's obviously received updates it's been quite a long time now I think there is there is a need to continually develop like they don't they still have a bike stuck in 2018 in my opinion there's no wings on it no you know nothing that the other manufacturers are doing for special racing purposes. Even the Kawasaki has wings, even though it's internal. But like, they just—I wouldn't say they need a brand new bike because clearly it's still good. But they certainly need something—a big update, you know, almost a mid-season update to to bring it back in line with the other bikes. Is it a case of Yamaha or Yamaha and Kawasaki simply not having a good enough bike right now and Ducati is so far ahead? Or would things even out if they all had the same rev limit? I think given what we've seen from the Ducati at the moment, I think an even rev limit wouldn't solve a thing because the Ducati is still clearly far ahead. Ducati in, in both MotoGP and World Superbikes right now, they're putting the most in and they're getting the most out. People are complaining about it, but it's like you deserve, you reap what you sow. And if you're going biggest, you deserve the biggest rewards. And that's what's happening right now. So I, I don't, I think it's six of one and half dozen of the other in that I think the Ducati is best, but there's more development needed on the new Kawasaki and Yamaha need an update. It how could much, collide. How much, let's say, horsepower and how much time are we talking if we were uh, to give Yamaha and um, and Kawasaki the same rev limit as uh, Ducati with the 16,100, I believe. So how much would they be able to close the gap if they had similar, um, similar rev? I think to the point where they'd be in touch and then the rider can make the difference. Like Kawasaki especially need those 500 revs back. They do. Like it's become so clear now. And they've got a new engine this year with more torque, which obviously is making them suffer with the tire right now. They will find the, the compromise. 
but they still need those 500 revs. And I don't see why they weren't given the 500 revs and then rein back if needed, as opposed to maybe see how they do and give them the 500 revs. I thought that was a very, very strange move. What's the procedure of adjusting the refs? Quite literally, Dorna could just do whatever they want, pretty much. As in, if they decide one day, oh, Ducati have too much of an advantage, let's rein those in. They can just decide one race to the next, or oh, you're having 500 less revs now. It's, it's literally that simple. Like if one is dominating too much, they lose revs, they can add ballast. But, you know, Kawasaki are running only with rev handicap, and they're still not anywhere near at the moment. Like, yeah. and there's not really much else you can do to Ducati because they've got such a good engine. Revs aren't going to really do much to them. You know, it's like there's just Ducati are reaping what they've sowed, as they've said, and it's paying off really big for them. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, to me also good to see because Ducati has stuck with MotoGP, especially uh, during the very, very dark time after Casey Stoner left. They uh, brought in Gigi Dalinia and it was a very long process on coming to the top. And now finally they won their first championship and people are already complaining. Like Honda didn't win seven championships or whatever in a row with Marc Marquez. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit strange to me when people complain about uh, Ducati because I believe Ducati has done very, very good things for MotoGP and also World Superbike. Yes. Um, I remember when Johnny Ray was as good like the Ducati on the V2 were the only ones who could touch them and uh, give them a run for their money. And Ducati always stayed in motorcycle racing and tried to develop the best. And it's not their fault that the other manufacturers aren't able to develop a bike. So yes, that's yeah. the big thing. That's the big thing. It's like, it's not Ducati's fault that they are the best. You know, it's, it's up to the other manufacturers to keep up. It's not to Ducati to slow themselves down. It's up to the others to get to their level. Yeah, but still, I would like that at least the refs would be uh, would be similar. Like everybody had sixteen thousand, everybody had fifteen thousand. I don't care, but it, let's make them similar and look where we are going. And then maybe you could give Kawasaki and Yamaha a bit more and even it out. Because when you have this tool to uh, to maneuver with, you should use it to make a better package for the fans and not a worse package. Because right now you're giving the best bike more refs. And as you said, it's not only about the refs, but uh, it would still be an easy fix right now. As you said, Donna could just uh, just adjust it and we would be off of having more close racing and not being uh, stuck with a very boring race one. Yeah. And uh, the other thing as well is I don't want a minimum weight limit in World Superbikes, but it's going that way where they may have to introduce it because Bautista, like Scott Redding was a good example. He's complaining about it a lot on Instagram and he does have a point, but this is not a new issue. But the fact is he's losing 30 odd kilograms to, to Bautista. And when you do that before the race has even started, it's, it's alarming, you know, it's, it's, you're never going to get anywhere if you're giving up that amount. So I think it's going that way. I don't want it, but I think it is going that way. 
I mean, when you have the same tires, when you have the same electronics, why not have the same weight? It's also a quick fix. Yeah, but quick fixes are not what we need, in my opinion, in wheel superbikes because it's getting good now. Wheel superbikes is getting very interesting. Um, I still prefer MotoGP. I got to be honest because the whole prototype, etc., seeing the new wild things that you can bring, which obviously you can't with wheel superbikes, is a production based chassis. But wheel superbikes is getting very good at the minute. They just need to tweak the formula for this year because Ducati have stepped it up. And I think we'll be back to where we were last year. Yeah. And I would like to uh, discuss the Super Bowl race before we uh, go into a very deep rabbit hole on what's ha what has to change in MotoGP and uh, World Superbike. Um, yeah. In, in uh, the Super Bowl race, we had the Johnny Ray and Alvaro Bautista incident, which was strange for everybody who can't uh, remember it from the top of their heads. Uh, Johnny Ray overtook um, overtook Alvaro Bautista and they went offline a little bit, but not off track. But the, um, the track in Mandalika is pretty dirty. And when yes. you remember the pictures from the MotoGP tests back then where the bikes were brown afterwards, so yeah, it was pretty dirty off uh, line and Ray had a moment there, but he uh, stayed on the bike and Bautista had a moment and he crashed. So yes. what did you make out of this incident? I think it was a totally fair move from Ray, first and foremost. I think he did everything right. And on a normal track, it would have been fine. But on Mandalika, where it's notoriously dirty offline, Maybe it wasn't the best move, but I think Mandalika is essential to what, how do I put this? Any other track, it was a good move. This track, maybe hold off. But then I think he's, his moment caused Alvaro to have his own moment. I think they were chain reaction. And of course, Alvaro went down, Ray didn't. On we go. I, I, I saw some people saying, oh, you know, Ray was being too rough with Bautista, this, that, and the other. How? Like, there was no, there was nothing out of line with that move, at least. And I feel like from watching a couple of uh, Superbike races now, that Johnny Ray is, especially this season, very, very aggressive because yes. he has to be on the inferior bike. And that's maybe uh, an explanation that he just has to go for a move when it's there, even though it's not 100% safe, because he can't have the luxury on sitting behind Bautista and waiting for the perfect opportunity, because two uh, corners later, Bautista is gone and he doesn't have the, um, and he doesn't have the opportunity to overtake at all. So I, for me, I'm totally fine with, uh, with the incident. And in my opinion, something, is up with Mandalika where you can't have a situation where you go slightly off track and then all of a sudden you crash. I don't know what's going on there. I'm not too familiar with the track. Are there, are there even other serious racing except MotoGP and uh, World Superbike or what's going on with the track when those two major series aren't there? Do you know that? I'm, I know they do some racing there. I, I don't think it's year round like Sapang, etc. But obviously monsoon season, comes along and basically wipes the track to zero again every every autumn, doesn't it? So that's the big problem. Like monsoon season comes, it gets flooded, and then it's a dirty track again for the next year. And on and on the cycle will go. We okay. need some form of a protection for it, but 
I don't see what you could do other than put drains in, but then you're going to crash on the drains. So it's, it's a tough one. Yeah, but in Thailand or in Malaysia, you don't have these issues and it's like a similar area. So... Yeah, they also have elevation changes though with Mandalika doesn't. That's okay. the other issue with it. It's a very flat track. Okay. Yeah. So, but I'm very, uh, very keen to see what MotoGP will do when they go there. Maybe it will I, be better. Who knows? I, I don't. I, I actually don't like the track. I, I think it's in a poor location. The track layout is okay. It needs some elevation, but I don't think it really adds anything to a championship. You know, it, it's it's just faceless. It doesn't have any features that stand out. I mean, you would like to give the Indonesian fans uh, a home race because Indonesia is a very popular place for motorcycle racing and this would uh, be the motivation behind it. But yes. uh, yeah, you can't have an Asen or a Mugello in every, in every, um, in every country. And I, in my opinion, there are many tracks who are much worse from a layout perspective than Mandalika are. For example, the Red Bull Ring, I fucking hate it. It's just a triangle with uh, two left-hand corners in it. So mm -hmm. uh, who came up with that? But or Thailand is similarly uncreative, you know? Yes. But, um, it's another but, very faceless circuit, the Chang International Circuit. But in general, I, uh, I'm very much in favor of uh, going outside of Europe, even though it means I have to stay up all night and uh, watch. <laughs> and yeah. Watch the races while I'm on a festival but uh yeah <laughs> no I, I agree with you I, I think we do need to expand outside of Europe but I do think the Mandalika location in the Indonesian country is a poor choice because it's a flood risk and then making it flat it's just they, they should have at least considered the flood risk I think because but you can't just be coming in and starting from zero every single year something has to be done Yeah. And um, regarding the Super Bowl race to go back there, Petrucci had kind of a moment at the beginning of the race and it looked like he forced Lowe's to crash and Lowe's crashed into Loris' bus. And um, then the whole race was restarted. Yes. So uh, what did you make out of this incident? Uh, to be honest, it's just... I, I'm not 100% sure what happened. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I've watched it a couple of times now, and I see no reason that they should all have gone down. Like, I, I just, I, I can't really explain it, what I, what I think, because I, I don't know what I think, if that makes sense. It's like, I'm, again, it must have just been a reaction. It's like, that's, that's the only thing I can think, because there's no other explanation. It's just been a reactionary break grab. Down you go. Like, yeah. sorry to everybody who wanted a bit more depth in that, but I just, I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I am similarly clueless, but I thought it was due to the reason that uh, I was just watching it at phone. Oh, red flag. So uh, I'm coming back in five minutes and see what's going on. But um, yeah, it looked a little bit strange. And mm. I always think it's super hilarious when a rider is in the gravel and are shouting at another rider. So it looked like Loris Buzz was angry at Alex Lowe's. Alex Lowe's was uh, screaming, ah, oh, damn you, Petrucci. While yeah. Petrucci was going on the, um, on, back on the track again. So uh, yeah, I thought this was a funny situation. But I 
I don't know what went uh, wrong there either. And I thought maybe you could explain it, but maybe I'm not as... Uh, Sorry, as... I can't help you there on that one. I just, I'd like to hear the comments about it, but there's nothing yet. Obviously, we're, as we were discussing a bit, Baz ended up not doing the rest of the weekend. So, yeah, I'd, I'd just quite like to hear at all points from that because I'm very interested myself. But Loris Bass was, um, he was restarting in the yes. super race. And then Alex Loos and him had the second incident where Loris Bass didn't even crash, but he somehow broke his leg. And yes. good. I, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but he definitely broke some bones. Yes. And uh, I didn't uh, catch what was going on there. So did you know what was happening there? Well, to describe it, Lowe's came past Baz in the breaking zone. Baz sticks his leg out. Lowe's hits the back of his leg and breaks it. Yeah. Oh. Didn't even come off. And then Baz knew instantly that something was broken. He just stopped, pulled over. He had to be helped off the bike in the in the pits. He's, um, I think he's broken his tibia and done some ligament damage. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, I, I 100% put the blame on Baz because he would have felt Lowe's coming. He would have known Lowe's is coming past. You can't stick your leg out on a bike that's coming past you. You just cannot do it. And obviously, Baz is a big boy. You know, he, he's very tall. Sticking his leg out, there's a lot of leg to hit. Yeah. And... I think Lowe's was totally blameless in this. And I think Baz feels the same, to be honest. I think he realizes he made a mistake. But it's, yeah, it's a really weird one. Like you don't see it often, considering how much riders stick their legs out. You really don't see it that much. But this is the danger of doing it. Occupational hazard. And I feel like it's also a situation where Lawrence Bus wasn't prepared that an impact was coming. No, and didn't tense up and he was just basically getting hit without knowing anything. And those incidents are most, uh, most of the times are the worst. Yes. yes. You don't expect uh, that it's coming, but yeah, I wish him a speedy recovery. And uh, I thought it was a, a little bit of a funny, uh, funny situation where they carried him into, into the box. It looks, it looked a little yeah. bit funny. At first I thought, oh, well, you know, clearly he's just got a dead leg or something. And then the news comes out that he's broken in. I'm like, oh. I saw it and I was like, that looks funny, but I knew that something was up and I was like, you're not, you're not making fun of an injured rider right now. Yeah, so uh, you can't <laughs> not allowed. <laughs> I left it. But um, yeah, what was also uh, cool to see, I mean, not that you wish Alvaro Bautista to crash, but it was fun to have then race two, where he had to start from 10th position, which added a lot more spice into the, into the race. And I felt like this was a positive, a positive situation, A, for the championship, even yes. though Toprak didn't gain too much, uh, even considering that he went down in Phillip Island and, uh, and Bautista won a real race with 25 points. But, um, yeah, it was, it was fun to see Alvaro Bautista coming from P10 and um, it was a little bit unfortunate for Rinaldi and it was very, very fortunate for Bautista that the red flag came out there in race two. But yes. uh, yeah, it, it was kind of uh, 
yeah, it was kind of nice uh, that that was a little little spice in there, you know. Yeah, I I like the whole Super Pole idea. I think it's I think it's excellent. It's, that to me is what sprint races should have been if they wanted to introduce more racing in MotoGP. They should have done the whole Super Pole idea, and then you start from where you finish. But why do they only uh, determine the grid of the top ten? I don't know, honestly. I assume it's to do with the fact that if the top ten have an incident, they start lower, adds a bit of spice. Because it, like it, without wanting to disrespect anyone lower in the championship, if you're running thirteenth, fourteenth, starting thirteenth, fourteenth again isn't going to make a difference to you. Whereas it could really make a difference if you end up crashing out in the Super Bowl race and having to start 10th, as we saw with Bautista. It didn't make a difference in the long run, but it could. I think that's the idea. But it kind of only made a difference because there was a red flag and you can't account for that. So yes. without the red flag, it would have been a whole another story. Oh, 100%. Like, that it's, on the whole, it does normally make a difference. It just so happened that this time it didn't. <laughs> But uh, yeah, the the race two was uh, Rinaldi. I think ended up. I don't want to say he blew it, because it's clearly was a tire problem. But he he had that win on a plate and somehow threw it away. Can you change the tires after red flag? Yes, Alvaro did. He changed from the SCO to the SCX, and that's what got him the win. And the SEX is the softer tire, right? Softer option, yeah. He went to the softer option after the red flag. I don't know how many others did, but I know Alvaro did. And it paid off. And what did Rinaldi do? I believe he stayed in the same tires. New tires, but the same tire. I think he was on the softer option anyway. So I think it just went away from him. But he had the SEX tire too. I believe so, yes. I, yeah. I think he started pre-race, started race two with the SCX, put a new set of SCXs on after the red flag, and still cut those. So um, Bautista kind of blew a close championship that we were hoping for uh, after the Super Bowl race. Um, but yeah, what's what's your takeaway from the whole uh, race two after after the restart? I think if the championship continues in this vein, we will be done with three rounds to go. It's just, it's an absolute masterclass from Bautista at the minute. Winning everything in Phillip Island, winning the first race and the third race at Mandalika. He's already got a fairly comfortable gap. Like, I'm just, something needs to be done. Other riders need to catch up because... Like, okay, we had the Yamaha 1-2 in the Super Bowl race. But that's only because Alvaro crashed. Without that, I, I believe it would have been a 6-for-6 six six job. So yeah. I I think they, they have to do something about the Ducati, even just for now, and then slowly make them creep back up. Like, we've got a month now before Assen, so they can at least digest what's happened. It's hard to do it in the overseas as well, I will be honest. You know, it's it's very difficult to make changes there and then. I think we will see some some tweaks come at him. 
Hopefully. I'm planning to uh, go to Assen because MotoGP uh, last year in Assen was a rather unpleasant experience because there's this whole festival going on and uh, there are a lot of idiots going down there. But mm. I've heard that the World Superbike is much better in Assen and it has open paddock. It's more of a family, fam, fam, family. That's, that's yeah. the word, family atmosphere. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try this out, hopefully. Yes. And, um, yeah, I'm gonna. You, you'll love it. The accessibility of World Superbikes is something that MotoGP could learn from. MotoGP treats themselves almost as untouchable, I think. And yeah. like, we went to Donington for the World Superbikes last year, and whole open paddock. Like, you just see riders walking past you. You know, like not a care in the world. You would not see that in MotoGP. They're confined in their own little bubble, which you need to pay to get into. And even then, they just sort of walk past you. Like yeah. every rider was acknowledging people, waving. It was just, it was such a better atmosphere. What was, uh, back to the race, what was uh, rather interesting to see that a Honda uh, was on the podium, I believe. Yes. Uh, Javi Vieira, he was uh, putting the thing on the, on the box, as Jack Miller would say. Yes. Um, he was helped by Rinaldi with his tire issues running wide in the final lap. You know, top rack and VAA both went past, but you've got to be in it to win it at the end of the day. And normally the Hondas aren't. Uh, I I feel for Lequona. I really do, because he's been the superior Honda for the past year and a half, you know. And then for VAA to get the podium, it's, it's, it's a bit of cruel twist. But I'm, I'm really, really happy for VAA because he's, I think he's a very underrated rider, VAA. I don't think a lot of people realize just how good he actually is. So for him to get that podium, I'm very, very happy. And apparently something was up with Ika Likona anyways, because he was struggling from Friday onwards. So maybe it's yeah. not his track. I don't know necessarily uh, exactly what was going on. Do you know anything? Uh, well, he had the same problems as last year, basically. Uh, no grip, just really struggling. Come back, same issues have arisen. They haven't solved anything for him at Mandalika. And considering this is supposed to be an updated Honda, that's a worry. And uh, Remy somehow uh, finished in P7 after finish, uh, after starting from last position. Mm. And he, uh, I would assume, was a little bit um, helped by the red flag as well. Yes, definitely. But, um, because you have like a lot of back markers where you need to overtake in the first few laps, which costs a lot of time. And by then... Rinaldi always uh, are almost was like two and a half seconds away from P2. So you're not making anything up there. So he was helped there too, but he was um, struggling with, uh, with some illness over the weekend, couldn't ride on Saturday. And it was refreshing to see that he had such a, I would call it a heroic ride because uh, in those conditions, when you're not feeling well, it's, it's, it's brutal. Yeah, well, as we, it's, it's hurt a few riders. Like Eric Granado didn't ride all weekend because of it. You know, it's, Remy would probably have been feeling very, very rough. Like, I wouldn't have wanted to ride in that heat feeling good, you know, let alone feeling under the weather and having this Saturday. So for him, for him to do that and to come P7, I think I think he deserves a round of applause for that because that was a very, very impressive ride. 
Yeah, and he has some experience uh, on riding with diarrhea because uh, he told me that in 2020 uh, in the second Valencia race he had a similar uh, issue and it's like on the first podcast with Remy uh, he he talked about it was uh, was a funny story but yeah he has some experience on uh, riding with diarrhea and um, and I feel also that he's he's such a dog where he won the championship with uh, broken ribs he had some um he had a broken hand in in preseason testing in MotoGP and still wrote the whole testing program and all of this and like it's the typical motorcycle racer they're on a different breed and that's why i'm yeah. laughing a little bit when i uh when i hear uh formula one discussing if uh if stroll should race with a with a broken wrist but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i was like yeah. nothing for bike riders is a tell the bike riders about it i mean Jorge lorenzo going onto the yamaha on uh, where he can't even walk and uh winning races um, it was crazy yeah. but uh yeah yeah totally different breed bike riders you've got to be nuts it's that simple but in formula one i've heard that they have this uh, escape test where you have to be able to escape the bike in uh, not the bike the car Yes, in, that's right. Uh, in under five seconds, and he failed it like two times, and then on the third one, he he made it. But in a serious situation, you obviously don't have uh, three. Uh, oh, that's it. In a, you're not going to get a reset if yeah. the car's on fire, like like a Grosjean at Bahrain. Yeah, you know, like you're not you're only going to get a certain amount of time. So, I, I mean. I, I, all bike riders are going to be looking at Formula One now and just laughing like, uh, yeah, no, we've done worse like on a Sunday, you know, like, come on, mate, grow up. But yeah. at the same time, safety is paramount. And sometimes both drivers and riders, they need to be safe from themselves. Yeah, especially after watching the Marcus documentary where he was like, the injury in Jerez necessarily wasn't that bad. The problem was that he was riding a week afterwards and therefore... I mean, he said it was his decision, but at the end of the day, which doctor tells you you can ride with uh, surgery in your uh, in your arm like one week later? This is beyond. It was a poor decision. It was a yeah. very poor decision, and he's paid for it. Yeah. So I think he knows now. Yeah, but also like Alex Marquez in Catalonia, where he had this concussion, he ended up having a very good race last season, but. Are those really necessary to bring home, let, let's say, P10 when you're not fighting for a championship? I mean, Remy with the broken ribs, I can understand that uh, when you're fighting uh, against your teammate uh, for, for the world championship and you have to be there that you take the risk, of course. But yes. let's say you're an Alex Marquez and you're not fighting for anything. Why even doing it? But yeah. He shouldn't have been allowed to ride. It's that yeah. simple. He should not have been allowed to ride. And it's to me a stupid, uh, a stupid excuse to say, yeah, he wanted to ride because obviously he wanted to ride. <laughs> of course he wanted to ride. He's a bike racer. Yeah. You, you need to save them from themselves. But, uh, coming back to Remy, I'm very happy that he, uh, raced because as I said in the last episode, to me, when I'm watching a rookie, it's all about collecting data. You have to uh, be able to collect all the data you can in your head to figure out how to 
be um, comfortable on the bike, on how to, how things work in walks of the bike, and therefore even if it's uh, just a just a battle for let's let's make something up P13 or whatever, it's still valuable to get the track time. But yes, um, yes, in this definitely. case, it was more like uh, he didn't have necessarily an injury. It was just he was feeling sick, I would assume. But uh, he was trying to do it anyway, and he had a very, very heroic ride going to P7, which was absolutely amazing, and beating Dominic Agueta by a mile who has no injuries or, or yes. illness at all, you know? Yeah, Domi struggled here, so it's good. That's going to give Remy confidence because, if we're being honest, Domi was the better rider in Phillip Island out of the two GRT boys. Um, so for him to come back and beat Domi, despite being ill, that's going to give him a load of confidence that he's going to hopefully take to Assen. He'll obviously be feeling better when we get to Europe, or you would hope anyway. So it should be a good one. What are your impressions and expectations for Remy this season? I think I think a top seven is possible. Both GRT boys, I think, will push each other really, really hard. I think it's a very, very good pairing. You know, two rookies, they're both going to learn from each other. They're both supremely talented riders, both, you know, lower class champions, granted different paddock for Remy, but both know how to win the world championship. And you don't do that by being a mug. It's that simple. So if, I think Remy will learn more from Domi because Domi's been riding superbikes since like 2010 in the Suzuka eight hours, etc. So I think come the end of the season, I expect him to be, you, I think you'll be able to, throw a blanket over both of them. I think they'll both be fighting for about P6, P7. Talking about uh, the Supersport class, it's a little bit a weird class for me because it... I don't want to sound disrespectful, but I'll just uh, say it. Uh, it sounds like a recycling class for Washed Up Moto2 riders. At this point, yes, it, it does feel that way. It, it It's so much more than that. But if you were to look at it, I I totally agree. Like, you'd think, oh, Manzi's there, Navarro's there, you know, just Bulliga's there. Like, of the top four at the minute, two of them are fa failed Moto2 riders, even though they've won races, they've got pole positions, etc. It's... I, I totally get why people think it. But then if you actually look in depth and you realise how good some of the riders are, it's it's a very good class. Yeah, of course, I, I really enjoy watching uh, this sport class. And um, going back to the point, I mean, looking back that Lorenzo Balasari, he wasn't cutting it uh, anymore in Moto2. Dominic Egeta, he had some good races in Moto2, but he wasn't going to cut it. Marcel Schrötter, like all these um, all these riders going over there, it's, yeah. It's, it's a good second chance, I think, to yeah. revive your career because... The Moto2 is very cutthroat and one small change because everybody's on a Kalex can mean the difference between P6 and P15. You know, the, the tire that Dunlop make are basically an endurance tire for Moto2 is terrible. No feeling, no grip, multiple Moto2 riders have said the same. So to come to this paddock where they run Pirelli tires, you know, much nicer, much, much more soft, much more feeling it can just totally transform your career. Yeah. And uh, as we've seen with Dominic Agata, he's doing uh, phenomenally. Yes. Um, well, you know, double world champion in super sport. 
and he came in after, for all intents and purposes, having tumbled down the Moto Two paddock. Like yeah. he, he, you know, he's won races, and then all of a sudden he's slowly gone worse and worse and worse to the point where he wasn't even scoring points when he left. And then he's coming to that one straight away. Balder the same one on his debut last year. You know, it's 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 not. It's not fair to call it a, a washed up super super a motor two paddock, but essentially it is, and that's the cruel part. Yeah. Also like Nicolo Bolega and also um Chan Enchi, he was in um in Moto Three. He won his first race and everybody was raving about him. Oh my god, he's the next big thing. And then he dipped, but he won his uh, first race. So that's uh that's an achievement. Yes. Yeah. Race in uh, in World Super Sport, obviously he won in Model Three, but uh, yeah, what did you make out of uh, his race one, his uh, his win there? I think he was helped a lot by Bulaga losing his head in race one. You know, Bulaga was probably the fastest rider over the weekend, but then to make contact with Spinelli, you know, ruin his race pretty much. It gave onto a clear, clear thing to not have to push. He could just manage his race, manage his tyres, which has been Onchu's problem very, very much since he's come to the Super Sport paddock. He's not been able to look after the tyres. He does it, and look what happens. He wins. It's, it's like, as long as he's not being pushed, he can just scamper off into the distance, as we saw with his gap, two-second win. You know, but Kawasaki's had a lot of updates this year. They've got fly-by-wire now, you know, a, lot more, a lot more of a modern Super Sport bike to compete with the Yamaha and the Ducati. And it showed. So I think he fully deserved that win. But we know he's not going to be able to continually do it at this point. He still doesn't have the tire management. Uh, everything motorizing back when he had a story where um, where he said now he uh, won't stop winning. And it, in, in race two, it turned out to be wrong. But I'm... Um, excited to see what uh, Enshu will do in the future because oftentimes when you get this burden of your chest of the first victory sometimes uh, things are a lot more easy and yes. I felt like this was the perfect situation for him because he was in a it was kind of a mixed condition race where there were a little bit of raindrops and not everybody knew uh, what was going to happen with the weather there was a lot of wind and he was in the perfect spot at the uh, uh, right time when yeah. he was leading and uh, a little bit of not chaos, but a few overtakes were happening behind him and he was able to um, get like one second gap. And then Nikki Tuli was in uh, P2 trying to hunt him down and he did a good job in the first few laps, but then he started uh, battling with, uh, I believe, Karikasulo, right? Karika, yeah. Yeah. And um, there was this funny situation, uh, I don't know if you remember it, where... Uh, Nikituli was uh, going on the on the main straight, turning yep. around and waving his hand like, "Hey, stay behind me. Uh, we can catch Anju." Uh, and uh, Karakasulu overtook him literally in the next corner. I was yeah, hard. it was super funny to me. I don't know why riders do that because never in the history of bike racing has anyone ever listened to someone tapping the seat and say, "Stay behind me." It just doesn't happen. <laughs> Yeah, especially when you have a Ducati behind you who has who's notorious for power that uh, you just want to do everything but slow yourself down. 
because mm -hmm. he was going out of um, out of his bike, and obviously you slow down when you have a lot more of uh, air resistance there. And uh, then in the first corner, he he took his chance and basically never looked back. Yeah, well, he had to. He was faster than Thule, despite what Thule thinks. He was faster, and it showed. Yeah. So you know he had to pass him because if he wanted any, it was too late. Like, but if he wanted any chance of passing on Chu, he had to pass Tuli very quickly, and he didn't do it in time, and which is fine, you know, it it happens. And Tuli is a very very hard man to pass. He's very very good on the brakes, so I think Carricker did the right thing in the end. But by that point, the race was gone. The win was gone. What did you think about, or what do you think about Nicolo Bollega's race weekend? Because it was a rather strange one. Roller coaster, wasn't it? He's a uh, like I think Bulliger alone is the fastest world supersport rider out there at the moment. Just put him on a track on his own; he will set laps faster than anybody else is capable of. Put him in a pack, and he's too nervous. He doesn't like the fight. He needs to get his elbows out, in my opinion. Because otherwise, the super sport class is just going to pass him by. You know, it showed today in race two, which we'll get onto in a bit. Um, like race one, okay, he made the incident with Spinelli happen. Fair enough. No mistakes happen. Like, I don't think he was pushing to even pass Spinelli at that point. I think it was just a, a genuine mistake. But race two, he's, he's out in front, and what happens? doesn't even end up on the podium. You know, it's, it's something needs to change with him because pretty soon everybody's going to bully him out of the Supersport paddock. Otherwise, everybody's going to get faster and get closer. You're basically describing Maverick Vinales there. All the potential in the world, but somehow manages to fuck it up. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I think Vinales has got better at it with age. So I think, I'm hoping Bulliger will do the same. But Bulliger has the bike to bully people. You know, he has the Ducati, the factory Aruba Ducati, the only factory Aruba Ducati in the Supersport paddock. All the focus is on him. He is the factory Ducati boy. Like, if anybody's going to be able to bully you, it should be him. But instead, he's just so meek. He's just, he just needs to get his elbows out, say, no, you're not passing me whether you like it or not, kind of thing. But he doesn't. He just sort of says, oh, after you, sir. And the incident with uh, Spinelli was weird to me because... I don't understand how this wasn't a penalty when you consider that Petrucci and Javiviere in Philip Island was a penalty. Yes. And it's like this double standard again. I don't like... I, I do, on the last episode, I said uh, we will know if rest direction or like the whole um, direction they are going with contact is not toler um, tolerable. Yep, no, that's right. Yeah. Um, when Mark Marcus does it and they punish him, then we know uh, they're serious about it. But now we are back again with a stupid situation uh, where you have a minor incident in Phillip Island with uh, Petrucci and with uh, here, Javi Vera, which uh, get, gets penalized, even though it's just a one uh, position deduction, it's still a penalty. And then you have uh, Nicolo Belega absolutely hammering into uh, Spinelli and costing him his race and mm. he stays on the bike and therefore there's not a penalty. Like I can live with penalties as long as they're consistent, but it's yes. 
it's the same old story that they uh, pick and choose what to penalize and it's uh, it's frustrating yeah i agree i think the only the only th difference i can think is that they did take the mandalika circuit into account with the dirty track on the side and that's why Bulaga lost it but nonetheless i totally agree with you it should have been a penalty even if even if it just been a long lap or you know a one position grid penalty something like that just show that you're consistent and that you are penalizing everyone equally because otherwise you just you're just a laughing stock there's like it's that simple like nobody's going to take you seriously like it's yeah. it's getting better in MotoGP but in World Superbikes it still seems wildly different depending on what class who it is what situation we need like a blanket rule and we're not getting it at the minute and i feel like in uh, the whole whole world sbk world uh, they are a lot more aggressive anyways in MotoGP, it looks more these days that these riders are on rails and are robots doing anything which the bike needs yes to make the bike go fast and uh, superbike has a more human aspect to it which i like But I feel like they're so much more aggressive bumping into each other. There were so many pressures, like Scott Redding, for example, um, where there was no gap at all. And he, uh, I forgot who he crashed into, but he crashed himself and was, um, and was saved by the red flag. With all the races, I'm losing a little bit track on what. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to look because there's just so much going on. Yeah, but. Um, You know, I feel like in general that the uh, superbike world, and I'm saying world superbike and also world supersport, that they are a lot more aggressive and a lot more, uh, let's yes. say, contact friendly hmm. while racing. Yeah, um, I think it's because you don't have 37 wings to lose, to be honest. I think that pays a part. So, you know, like as we saw in Valencia with Peko losing a wing, it does affect the balance of the bike. So if you have no wings to lose or you've just got a basic wing, like even the Ducati is just, you know, a, a tea tray is not, like it's obviously going to provide some downforce, don't get me wrong, otherwise it wouldn't be on there, but not to the point where it's going to upset the bike. So I think you could afford to take that risk and maybe run fair ends knowing nothing's going to fall off. It, it yeah. does make for better racing. That's correct. And uh, that's uh, another rabbit hole I'm not willing to go down today. <laughs> No, that's fair. I uh, I could talk about it the the whole argument for hours. So, I, yeah, let's not. <laughs> What I do want to talk about is uh, Stefano Manzi's race in uh, race two, which was very very entertaining. He came back from P10, I believe, on a grid. Yep, P10. Overtook everybody, was in front, and then he had this battle with Caracasulo uh, in the last lap, which was amazing to watch. I was. Yep. Uh, going out of the uh, out of the festival arena and watching on my phone uh, while they were going, and then we went down to the um, to the car and watched the uh, race in the car, finished the race in the car, and um, it was very very entertaining. Yeah, this is I feel like in a the Moto GP race, I would have immediately fallen asleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was very exciting. Uh, I want to talk about this in two points. One, as a Manzi fan, I feel like the only Manzi fan in the world at this point. And two, as an objective thing, because as a Manzi fan, seeing him battling at the front, going how I was fairly sure his talent would allow, is great to see. You know, he won a race last year on the Triumph. Like, 
that in itself was an achievement in his first year. And then to come onto the Tenkati bike and show exactly how good you are. Okay, you didn't win, but it's not far away. Like, I, I would even suggest next race at Assen, he could take the win. He looks so comfortable on that bike. So, like, Tenkati and uh, Evan Bro's bikes are clearly the best Yamahas. So, for him to be on that team is, he has to be a championship contender. Uh, I think Carica was lucky that he was on it, but lucky in the sense that it's very good that he was on the Ducati year because it clearly looked after his tyres better than the, the other bikes. I don't think it's going to be the same story going forward in Europe. Especially Assen is not a track where Yamaha historically is bad. So it's it's usually a very good track for Yamahas. And uh, I feel like the DNA is somehow the Yamaha stays the same and it doesn't matter if it's MotoGP, if it's World Superbike or World Supersport. Yamaha is a very smooth bike to ride and you have a lot of, you have a very good chassis. They know how to do that. They yes. don't know how to build engines, but they know how to, uh, and they don't know how to build aero, but they know how to build a chassis. Yes, exactly. Uh, I feel like what you just said makes a lot of sense. But I'm also very interested in what Ducati will do because, as we talked about earlier, Ducati has this uh, ability now to win on non-Ducati tracks. And therefore, it will be interesting. And um, yeah, also, I don't necessarily understand the whole concept of having different engine sizes in the same grid like ducati is always almost a thousand cc bike but if 955 cc but as far as i'm concerned the reason is the following whether v2 you can't uh have as high of an RPM rate as you have uh, on the a, on a inline four. And therefore, you need more cubic capacity to achieve the same amount of, um, of performance. Correct. Then the, uh, then the Triumph and the MV Augusta are somewhat between. And then the Kawasaki and the Yamaha are inline fours and they can ref everything off the engine and get their power from that. But uh, it's still a very uneven way on how they achieve the lap time, even though it's a little bit the same. And on, in a track like Phillip Island, you would assume that a Yamaha is better because you don't need too much torque out of uh, tight corners. But Nicolo Bulliga, he was so incredibly good at the start in Phillip Island. He was blasting past everybody. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, coming back to Aston, I feel like that the Yamaha there will be better as well. But um, with Caracasulo and the Ducati, I didn't know that that the Ducati is um, softer to the tires. Yes, uh, it's just a it's a V twin trait anyway. Like it, it delivers its power much smoother. But uh, I, I think I got to be honest. I think like to hop on what you're saying there. I think it. The World Supersport organizer and Scott Smart before he left deserves a round of applause for how he's managed to make this rule set come in of so many different types of bikes and they are so close. Like you you can't really determine what is the best bike in Supersport at the moment. Because it could be one of like okay, the, the triumph and the MV are a little bit off, 
but they will come. But like, if if you were moving into World Supersport now and you had a choice between the Aruba Ducati, the Ten Carte uh, Yamaha, or the Kawasaki Donchus on, any one of those can win you a race. It's it's so close, and it, it the rule set itself is very good at the minute, and I think they need to maintain it. Like, I think they deserve a round of applause for how they've managed to pull this off. Genuinely, yeah. If I was coming into uh, World Supersport, I would look at the Ducati because I would see how good Ducati is in World Superbike and how good they are in MotoGP and assume that they bring a very competitive package too. Yes. Or I would go to Yamaha and see what Dominic Agata did over the last two years there and say, hey, this is the bike you want to be on. Hmm. That's it. This, But like two very different ways of achieving the same lap time is, is so, like, it's so interesting as well. Like, if you actually sit down and delve into it, how the strengths of the bike are considered a weakness against the other bike. It's, it's, it's just so cool to see. Yeah, and I'm uh, really enjoying the super sport races. Uh, I watched them more or less on accident uh, because I was watching the I was watching the Super Bowl in Australia, and then there was this uh, Super Sport race between. I was like, "Yeah, a lot of Moto Two riders right there. Let's watch it." And I figured out, "Hey, it's a very fun class, a yes. little bit like uh, Moto Two or like Moto Three. Like those lower classes are a lot more fun than the big class in itself." But um, yeah, I'm I'm enjoying the class. And do you think that Manzi will? continue to improve and win the championship in the end I hope so. it's not like as a monthly fan but in a in a more rational way let's put it this way i think the top four who finished in race two are going to be the top four candidates for the championship like everybody's going to to and fro because if we're honest with baldassari and agata gone the level is slightly lower now like those two were very, very good on super sport bikes, clearly ahead of the field. So to take those out of the equation, bring some new riders in who are at the level of the current riders, I think I think we could see a year-long battle. And it, honestly, it could be any one of those four at this point. It really could. It's, it's going to come down to who develops through the season and who adjusts themselves best to the super sport package they're on now. Because Bulliger and Carriga... They are on and on to actually are on the same package they were on last year. Only Manzi's changed. Whether that pays off, we'll have to see. You touched on Balasari, and um, I remember last night I had a conversation with my girlfriend when we, uh, I believe it was when we were driving back, that um, we both don't understand the decision of Balasari moving to World Superbike because. I feel like he went from a very difficult Moto2 time to the World Supersport paddock and was basically competitive immediately. And um, I didn't watch the races last year, but you see the results and you get a feeling like, hey, he's doing good or he's not doing so good. And um, I don't understand why he doesn't uh, or didn't do a the second season in World Supersport because now he has to adapt to a new class and new bike and things aren't going as well as they should because Lorenzo Balassari is a hell of a rider when things are working for him. Yeah. But things aren't working for him like in the last five years or whatever. So uh, what's like 
your impression on the decision of leaving World Super Sport where things were going into the right direction and not taking like a year of development there? Well, that's it. Like, Balder and Manzi are my two writers, like the, the two I will support. Like, I, I, I pretty much like to think I'm quite, you know, neutral a lot of the time. But they are the two writers who I will pull for. And I totally understand the reason why Balder moved up. What I cannot understand is the team he moved up with. If GRT had offered him something, yeah, totally. You know, GRT are a very good squad. GMT 94, again, are not a bad squad, but they're not going to win you a World Superbike race. It's like, okay, they're factory Yamaha supported this and the other, but they're just not at the level of GRT or Pada. They're just not. So I, I didn't understand the why of which team, but I totally understood why he moved up. Because if we're honest, Supersport is the end goal. That isn't the end goal, sorry. Like Supersport is the stepping stone if you come over to then get into Will Superbike and try and win that title. So why delay? But at the same time, he could have maybe stayed in Supersport. You know, because again, with respect to Andrea Mantovani, He's not doing what Balder did on that bike last year. So I think I think I agree with you in that he should have stayed down for another year. Could have won the title, had his pick of the Yamaha's then, pretty much. So it's a very strange one. Also, I would argue Moto 2 isn't the end goal, and uh Iogura choose uh Joe's Moto 2 over a non-competitive Honda. Yeah. Which in my opinion, was a smart move. Like, if yeah. you're Honda, it sucks. But if you're Ogura, uh, I wouldn't want to ride the Honda. So let them figure it out. And Ayogura uh, stays there and wins the championship. 100%. Ayogura made the right call, first yeah. and foremost, with that. Maybe he wins the championship. But um, I don't see him having a shot against, uh, against Pedro and Alonso. Because... Going back to the whole MotoGP uh, story now, uh, elaborating on this, I feel like Ogura lost his head towards the end. And yes, that, that's the issue. Like everybody can ride in World Superbike, everybody can ride in MotoGP, in Moto2, in Moto3, in World Supersport. Everybody can ride. It's yes. down to those uh, small things. And like Ogura had the championship on a golden plate and he fumbled it. So I don't also I don't think he will recover pretty well from this because he has a whole winter of um thinking about hey I fucked up I fucked up you know and it's it's difficult to get yourself out of this hole there's like a statistic that um very very few teams in the NFL who lost the Super Bowl did well the following season yes it's I, it's I, a, it's I a mental see it I can I can see it happening but at the same time Agura is a young rider still. You know, he's not even 20 yet still. If he learns from this, he could be a real threat for the championship. But whether he learns, that's the thing to be decided. Like, I, he totally made the right call in staying down. You've got to go for the championship. You know, it's, it's, if nothing else, it's something nice to have on your CV. You know, I was a Moto2 world champion. I beat the best Moto2 riders in the world. And even if he doesn't win the MotoGP championship, he's got that ride sewn up. Like, let's be honest, Nagagami isn't surviving another year. There's just no way. Agura's going up. Like, that, that is pretty much it. 
if they sew that up early in the season and the pressure's off Agura, we could see it's something big. I don't see him standing a chance against Pedro, but on the other hand, I don't see anybody standing a chance against Pedro. So maybe... My, my, my championship winner for Moto2 is Albert Arena, so we will see. Yeah, but Arenas, uh, in my opinion, is not on the level of Pedro, and he has the same um, he has the same advantage in his corner, which is Aki Ayo. And I feel like Aki Ayo is the cheat code you want to have in Moto Two. Remy yes. said, "Whole team is so structured; everybody knows what to do, and therefore you you get the best package you could possibly get at yes. every turn." And I can see other Arenas doing much better. But I don't see him uh, standing a chance against Pedro. Well, I, I'm on record as saying Arena, so we will see. But I, <laughs> I do think I think Io is going to be the stepping stone that he needs. I, I think it'll be close. You know, we could see a four, five, six rider battle for the championship this year. In my opinion, there's a lot of strong riders. So it's a tough one. But I've gone Arena, so we will see. <laughs> you also uh, touched on. Um, viewing things unbiased yes and this is a very cool experience to me uh, watching world superbike watching world supersport because i don't give a flying fuck about anybody yeah. except remy yeah so uh, i can i can watch races from a different perspective and uh, like when for example when i'm in when i'm watching a moto gp race i have my favorites i have my uh uh, riders or teams I support, for example, Alej. Alej, I want to see him win. He is yes. uh, Same. right now uh, my my favorite rider in MotoGP because he's a he's super cute and uh, like the way he uh, he presents himself with his children, with his wife. Yes, hundred percent. Yes, always uh, supportive and um that's he, he has like you, you want to see him win you know yeah i this, wish he was my dad to be honest yeah yeah <laughs> he has this uh cute personality where you just you just like him you know mm. and uh also he has been through so much shit that you just want to see him finishing with a world uh, championship and then yeah. retiring uh flying his private jets uh, driving his lamborghini whatever the fuck he wants Riding his bike, uh, you He's know, it. I, I just it's that want... simple. But when you watch a race from this perspective, you have you have yeah. a bias. You, you can't change it. And I'm not pretending to be uh, unbiased because I'm not, obviously. But uh, it's it's refreshing to have a more unbiased view on uh, on the world super sport and world uh, SBK yeah. race. I, I think as long as you're honest about your bias. And you know you don't come up with stupidly outrageous statements about the person you like. I think people are fine with it. You know, like like I'm quite lucky in that both of my riders now are in the World Supersport paddock, so all of MotoGP is just objective to me. Like, it is on paper, I can say what I see. You know, that nothing clouds my judgment. Obviously, I I still have riders I like in the world in the MotoGP paddock and riders I want to see do well. But if they do something stupid, I'm going to tell them. And if they if they do something amazing, equally praise them. You know, it's just, it's only fair. But like, if 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 Manzi wins this championship, I would not be unhappy, put it that way. Like, he's the one I'm pulling for. So, you know, fingers crossed, because I've taken so much crap over the years for supporting Manzi, even when he was like, you know, when he was on the suit, decking it 32 times in a year. 
and every so oh, he's just all he does is crash this and the other, and then to stick that MV on pole <laughs> twice, you know, clearly there's something there. Yeah. What's your championship prediction before I let you go for a uh, superbike and supersport? Alvaro for World Superbike. And I think honestly, Manzi for Supersport. But it's going to come very close between the top four. Whereas I think Bautista will sew it up before, at least before the last race of the year. Yeah. I think we are going to come down to the final race of the year. Probably all four of them will still be in contention when we go to Argentina at the end of the year in Supersport. Yeah. I think that uh, going back to Europe when Remy gets uh, uh, like all of this experience uh, he gained in his uh, stint in the first two weekends overseas that he will now win every race and win the championship. Oh, easy. And It's not simple. <laughs> I'm very confident in that. And in Supersport I, I think looking at it that I want to say Nicolo Bolega because you in 2023 you don't bet against the Ducati. Yes. And I'm, I'm not too confident in uh, the other riders as well. But I'm also not too confident in Nicolo Bolega because as you said, yeah. like all the tools in the world, like back in Moto3 uh, or in Moto2, he had all the ingredients to win, but he sim simply couldn't pull it off. And uh, yeah, therefore, I'm not sure. I'm, That's I'm, why I've got Manzi, because I, if Bulliger was even half as mentally strong as the other riders, I would go Bulliger. But I just don't see it. Like, I hate to say it because I do like Bulliger. You know, he's a very stylish rider, very good rider. You know, he carries himself well in interviews. There's absolutely nothing to dislike about him. But he is just so mentally fragile that I just can't see him having it in him to win a title. Like, he won a Chev title, yes. But, you know, junior GP pressure is not world championship pressure, is it? Yeah, and that's a classic example of everybody can ride. And he was so good in Moto3 at the beginning of his career. But then the expectations came and then the pressure came and he was nowhere. Yeah. Like if, if we're talking experience, Caracasulo has to be favorite because he's been in the class for a long time. He knows where it takes to win races in the championship. But I think on outright speed, it's either going to be Onchu or Manzi who wins it. What do you think Jorge Navarro will do later on when he's fully recovered from his horrendous injury? I think... Come mid-season, he will be up there winning races consistently. Like we, we we've seen Navarro win in Moto Two, and we know he's good. He's another one who liked to crash. But did he win in Moto Two? Yeah, on the speed up. Yeah. When? Uh, I'm not a hundred percent off the top of my head. I'm afraid, but he definitely won a race. I'm sure he did. I can't remember. He's podiumed a few times on the speed up. He, I'm sure he did. I'm not going to be wrong on that, mind you, but I, I'm fairly certain he did. I remember Fabio winning a race on the speed-up, but I don't think Jorge Navarro won a no, race. No, you're right. He didn't. No, no, sorry. He got seconds, thirds. No, he never won. My bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Lopez was the one after after Fabio. But yeah. again, to, you know, to podium, still in Moto2 is not a poor... You know, he's clearly not a poor rider. So, no, not. No, he, but he... Like, yeah. Like he podiumed in front of me at Silverstone, you know, he's 
he knows what he's doing. Yeah. But to obviously the injuries handicapped him already and moving championships over, it's it's not not an easy thing to do to adjust to the R sixes. And apart from his leg break, he had some serious injuries previously, you know, and he's one of those riders like the Danny Pedrosa category of rider who has all the potential in the world, but somehow is always injured. Yeah, made a glass, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I wish him the best because I, uh, I think that he is... Funny story, when he came into Moto3, I thought he was better than Fabio back in 2015. I agree. Yeah, I thought Jorge Navarro in the long run will be better than Fabio. Um, but I was proven to be wrong. It is what it is. Uh, it's, it's. I don't think you were the only one at that point. Like We knew Fabio was special. But then when Jorge Navarro came in and was beating Fabio on the G-bike, we all thought, oh, you know, this guy's got a bit low. Yeah. But situations yeah, I'm still rooting for him and uh, yeah I'm very excited for the MotoGP uh, season which starts in like two weeks and uh, now we have a little bit of a break uh, with uh, World Superbike right in April mm -hmm. I believe yeah uh, we got a full month now until Aspen yeah in April somewhere uh, I can't remember when exactly Aspen is and yeah, but I'm excited uh, on what will uh, end up happening there. And now I'm focusing myself on, on the MotoGP. World SBK experiment has uh, come to not to an end, to a pause. Yeah, just a pause. <laughs> yeah. But who, are your, um, who are your champion predictions for Moto3, Moto2, MotoGP? Moto3, I would like to say Diogo Mojero, but yes. I'm not very confident in his team. I'm very confident in him as a rider. He's an absolute motherfucker on a motorcycle. He can do things basically nobody else can. Going to um, going to the Supermodel World Championship, winning races there. I went to Rocco's Ranch for the Christmas TT, and he was doing circles around everybody there. He is so incredibly talented. Yes. He did some serious damage on the... Um, on the empty helmets uh, bike last year, occasionally, but I'm not 100% sure that he will, um, or not he, that his team will provide him with the bike. But as it stands right now, I would say Diogo Mahera. And Moto 2, uh, obviously uh, Pedro Acosta. Yep, saw that one coming. <laughs> and with Moto GP, I'm a little bit. Um, I'm a little bit torn apart because my emotional side says Alage. I really want him to win, but I don't see it. Um, I mean, if Ducati is falling apart in terms of Peko crashing for five races, Inia Bastianini uh, crashing a lot, like they did at the beginning of last season, and Alage can take the step and maybe take the place where Fabio was at the beginning of last season, but stays consistent with all the data and the new Aprilia. I could see a scenario where he wins, but um, the probability is rather low. Yes, that's and the thing. Isn't it? To me, it's, it's like Pecos and Ineas to lose. And between those two, I'm leaning a little bit more towards Peko because he has A, the experience on the bike, 
in the Avastinini wrote a GP uh, 21 last year and a GP 19 in uh, 2021. Yeah. So he was on an older bike ever since. And now he's on the new bike, so he has to adapt. And I would argue that the development goes more into a direction where Packer wants it and Inia not yep. hasn't too much of an influence yet. So I feel like this is still more Packer's bike. Oh, it is Packer's bike. Like there, there's no other way to put it. Like it is built for Packer. He fits on it perfectly. I wouldn't say it's built for Peko. It's built basically for everybody because they have so much data and everybody is so good on the bike. But yes, yes Peko has the most influence in which direction the bike is going. But if you also, my point is, if you look at Peko on the bike, it fits him perfectly, if that makes sense. Like he, it's developed for him more than others, but also he fits it better than most. Yeah. So it's a and nice clash. In my opinion, if Peko keeps his head in the right place, which is his weak point, obviously, he, he doesn't have too many weak points. But if he can qualify on front row, get into the lead early and hammer those lap times when nobody can catch him on the best bike on the grid, I don't see a scenario where anybody beats him if Peko is on his A game. What I can see is that if Peko feels the pressure a little bit and Inea sorts out his qualifying like he did at the end of last season and um, is able to adapt to the GP23 and is able to um, to continue his great late race pace where he puts the pressure on Peko and maybe takes this extra step where he isn't waiting behind him but actually is overtaking him like he did in Aragon. If he can do this over a whole season, I could see Enea winning. I don't yes. see a scenario where Marc Marcus is winning. I don't see a scenario where Fabio Cotavaro is winning. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I'm leaning towards Paco. It's Not his lose. Yeah, from a probability scale, I would say Paco is most likely, then Enea, then Fabio, then Aleix, then Marcus. And for every other rider, I don't see a scenario where they win. See whether. That's where I will have to disagree with you. My championship pick is Bez. I don't see anybody... I only think that the GP22 is going to be better than the GP23. So if that is the case, which it's, it's you know it is likely because the GP22 was near perfect. Like the 23 is not looking as good so far. And I think the jump from the 23 to the 20... Like the jump that the 23 made is not going to be as big as the jump from 21 to 22 was in the end. If Bears can come out the block swinging, which as we've seen in the test, he is capable of going fast. I, I do think Bears can be in the mix. I think that Bizeki will be good at the beginning of the season. I also think that Marini will be good at the beginning of the season. But as the GP23 develops, I think that uh, Peko and Inea will pull away. And I also don't see a scenario where anybody wins the MotoGP championship on a satellite bike. Yeah, that's the big problem, that's, isn't it? Ducati going to allow it. It's, it's not getting developed anymore or not to the extent of the GP23. And uh, I think that when you're in a situation like uh, Peko is, where you have 
a bike which works better for you than the GP22 because the GP22 obviously didn't work well for Peko because he had the GP21.5 ish with the yeah. old engine. And now he said he's going back uh, to a more comfortable feeling with the engine, with the 23 engine, which apparently uh, had too much power coming out of the corner and this hit was too strong, this initial hit. Yes. Um, Jack Gorst uh, from Dorna, he told a lot about it on the Zipang Test podcast we recorded. Yes, and, I did um, listen he, to that, yeah. He explained it in detail. And if Ducati indeed has a GP23, which works better than a GP22, uh, from an engine perspective and also from an aero perspective, I don't see a scenario where anyone, they can win races, of course, but not over a whole season. I'd like just think that they will take some time, but this is Ducati. They don't mess about, do they? So you're, you're probably... I, I don't think it's going to be Paco, though. I do think is going to beat him mentally and then over the course of the season. Like, if it's going to be any of the factory Ducatis. But I do think Bez is going to come out and surprise a lot of people and will be in the mix. I, I can see a 3-4-5 rider battle, which I'm hoping for. But in reality, it could be that Ducatis just clear off, you know? I can see Mark Marcus doing his occasional miracle. I can see him winning in Austin. I can see him winning in uh, Germany. I can see him uh, pulling a rabbit out of his head uh, one or two times. But the Honda is not on a level where it's supposed to be when you're trying to compete with eight Ducatis. And also the whole overtaking thing is um, too difficult for Mark Marcus right now to... He's not the type of rider who gets in front and just does his laps and pulls away, you know? And I feel like MotoGP sadly is going into this direction. And the Honda isn't the package to be on. The Yamaha also isn't the package to be on, but Fabio, Fabio has to figure out his qualifying or Yamaha has to figure out his qualifying. Uh, because without that, there's no chance in hell that uh, he will even be competing for the championship if they don't sort this out. And um, yeah, the Yamaha isn't anywhere near the Ducati right now. So um, in my opinion, it's almost inevitable that the Ducati won't win the championship. Yeah, it's just which one is the yeah, real question. Which one, you know? And um, I am prepared, though, to wait until after the Portimao test to see to, to properly judge, because, you know, someone could bring like from where I viewed Honda might be bringing something very, very different. So that could be very interesting. Could be. Honda has a habit of bringing a lot of things to the test. But uh, if they work as. Uh, yeah. Is, yeah, they could bring a hundred things. If none of them work, what's the point, you know? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a tough one. I'm very excited about Aprilia's new engine that they will bring. Yeah. Let's see how this will work. But if Aprilia indeed will uh, bring a better engine and they will be able to compete more with the Ducatis, this will be good for Aleish. But he had some serious problems of um, overtaking anybody last season. And I don't see this issue fi fixed, and I don't see him qualifying on pole position uh, every race and running mm. um, from the front. So, well, yeah. apparently, Aprilia have at least addressed the straight line breaking issue, so that's a good thing. 
Whether they fixed it is another matter, but they've apparently addressed it at least. So, you know, even if it's an improvement and they can continue to tweak it, okay, you know, at least they know the weakness and they're trying to tackle it. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, but at the end, I, I still think Paco, he's at the level right now where he hopefully sorted all of his shenanigans in his head out, where he's able to take a second position, able to take a third position like he did towards the end of the season and what he wasn't able to do at the beginning of the season. I think he's more comfortable on the GP23 than he is on the GP21.5 or whatever he was riding there. And... Um, Yeah, and I think that Enea will will be a, a bastard. Yeah, he's <laughs> but, gonna. But I think Peko at the end will prevail. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's, it's a tough one. It's a, it's a very tough one. MotoGP is so close. Yeah, but I'm very uh, excited and therefore I'm happy that you did it. I'm uh, happy that you joined me to to discuss the superbike race and also, which wasn't planned, but uh, to preview <laughs> MotoGP, which is always yeah. fun to talk about and which is more of my expertise. No, happy to help. I'm glad to come on. Thank you very much for doing it and I wish you uh, all the best. Maybe start posting some memes. Uh, uh, just steal yours is fine. It's all good. <laughs> come to the dark side. And, <laughs> but thank you very much and... Uh, We can do it anytime again in the uh, in the future. Like I would like to have different guests appearing on different episodes, and you're more than welcome to come back to discuss maybe MotoGP race uh, in the future. Excellent. So um, yeah, thank you very much, and goodbye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>